know, last week I kicked off uh, kind of a mini-series inside of our series, How To. And I began to talk with us about the topic of forgiveness. Uh, one that, to me, was, has probably been one of the most difficult topics to cover in this series. And I wanted to extend this out a little bit further. And I want to address forgiveness and unforgiveness even on a deeper level here this morning. Now, uh, of all of the words or all of the subjects in the Bible... Uh, this topic of forgiveness probably ranks very high on being uh, one of the most sensitive topics to address or cover, but also one of the most difficult. Today, all over the world, not just here in Ionia, not just here in Michigan, not just in the United States, but all over the world, people are literally longing to forgive or be forgiven. In some situation, in some aspect. And the issue so many have is that we often don't understand what it means to forgive. Or we don't know how we can even forgive. But today's scripture uh, speaks to the heart and it gives us God's view of what unforgiveness looks like and how unforgiveness does much damage in the body. You know, the, the fallout of unforgiveness and the failure to grant forgiveness can cause devastating effects on our lives. You know, we closed out last week, and probably some of you are sitting in here, you're like, please don't say it again. But we closed out last week, and I asked us a question, a serious question, one that we were to reflect upon, and it was this, who's on your unforgiven list? Who's on your unforgiven list? That's so how we ended our service last week. And, and Peter, as we, we saw last week and we'll see again this week, he asked this big question and Jesus gave him an answer. And like a lot of answers given by Jesus, it was not what anybody was expecting. You know, Matthew 18 really zeroes in on the relational aspect and more specially or more importantly, our relationship with fellow believers but it's not limited to that. Forgiveness is not limited just to other believers. You know, the big picture to keep in mind is that God granted those of us who accept his son, he's granted us forgiveness. Amen, church? You know, total forgiveness at that. And now we must learn to do the same thing to others and understand what happens when we don't forgive. So if you're in Matthew chapter 18, uh, follow along with me starting in verse number 21. And Peter came up and he said to him, speaking of Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now I want to stop right here for a moment. The rabbis discussed this question in Jesus' age and they recommended that a person not forgive someone more than just three times. And so Peter seven times is very generous, but Jesus' reply does away with every single limit and every single calculation of the number of times that we should forgive. In fact, for those of you who are Bible scholars, and, and we'll go back and read this later, when Jesus says 77 times here, he's actually alluding back to Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, there's a character by the name of Lamech. And it says that, his, that he will be vindictive in his, his response to people 77 times, or 70 times 7 in his response. And so Jesus is saying that I am contrasting what, what someone in their sinfulness wanted to do in their evict nature to say we should unlimited uh, unlimited number of times forgive those who hurt us forgive those who sin uh, against us now look at verse 23 therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants and when he began to settle one of them was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents now, the king here in the parable expected his servants to be faithful and honorable in the way they conducted his business. And one day, he began to examine their work, and he would settle accounts with them. Now, I want to remind us what I mentioned last week. Most theologians and commentators list the modern value of 10,000 talents somewhere in the billions and billions of U.S. dollars. It's a figure that clearly represents an unpayable debt here in the text. Now look at verse 25. And since he could not pay his master, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
Of course the man was unable to pay the debt. The master commanded to sell the debtor and his family and all that he had. And even that would not satisfy the debt because church, if you uh, do any history study whatsoever, slaves in that day and age were sold. Their top price was sold at one talent. Just one talent. And, and oftentimes much less than that. So selling them would not have even covered the debt, yet it would bring some measure of justice to the master. Now look at verse 26. The servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Sorry, I just lost my spot. Yes, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay everything. Stop right there. As we read here in the text, I get caught up on this, this part in Scripture because this promise made by the servant made absolutely no sense whatsoever, none. He spoke as if all he needed was just a little bit more time, a little bit of patience from the master. And, and if he were given enough time, he would actually be able to somehow pay this massive debt that he owed. And the disciples, I can imagine right now as Jesus is telling this story, the disciples finding this portion of scripture humorous as Jesus teaches. Like, how can he pay back that much money? How is that possible? But look what happens in verse 27. Verse 27, and out of pity for him. Man, the master of that servant released him and he forgave him the debt. He forgave him the debt. The master showed mercy prompted by compassion, forgiving a debt that could never be repaid despite whatever promise the servant made. You know, church, if you walk away with nothing but this next thought, you'll benefit. Forgiveness here in the text was a choice. Forgiveness was a choice. The master decided to forgive the servant his debt. You and I need to decide that we are going to forgive. To, to, to forgive someone means that we release them from the liability of suffering some form of, of further punishment or, or penalty down the road. So let's look what happens, though, in the text. So the man is forgiven. His debt is completely removed. It's completely wiped away. Now look at verse 28. Let's see what happens. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Does that sound familiar? The first servant did the same thing. He pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The servant who had just been forgiven an unpayable debt went out and found someone who owed him money. And upon meeting him, he immediately assaulted him. Scripture says he began to choke him and he demanded payment to occur. Do you know the debt was real? A uh, hundred denarii is equal to a hundred days wages in that day and age. So, so the debt was real. I mean, it's not, it's not like this was an insignificant amount of money. But it was almost nothing compared to the debt that the first servant was forgiven. Almost nothing at all. The man who owed the smaller debt used the exact same plea and the same promise that brought about mercy to the man who had a greater debt and it gained nothing. And the forgiven servant put the man into a debtor's prison. Look what happens though in verse 31. And when his fellow servants saw, did you catch it? When his fellow servants, other people, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went to report to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summons him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers. In some versions, it says the tormentors or to be tortured 
He, he delivered him to the tormentors until he should pay all of his debt. You know, I found it very unique here in the text that there was no mention of the first servant's conscience bothering him in regards to his conduct. Nothing bothered him. It was his fellow servants that recognized the wrong that was done. Others could see the evil intent inside the man. Christian, in here this morning, Christian in the balcony, online, sometimes we are painfully and to our own embarrassment blind to our own sinful fleshly conduct. We are painfully blind. It was just wrong for a man who had been forgiven so much to then be so unforgiving. And when the master heard, he was understandably angry. And it came and it came that the first servant got what he deserved, justice instead of mercy. Now I want us to see how this parable ends. How this parable ends in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. You know, the principle is extremely clear here in Scripture. God has forgiven such a great debt that any debt owed to us is absolutely insignificant in comparison. You know, no man can possibly offend me to the extent at which my sin offends God. None whatsoever. Forgiveness must be applied in the little things just as much as it should be applied to the great things that occur to us. You know, there are many sincere Christians. There may even be some here in this room today or some watching online that withhold forgiveness from, from other people for mistaken reasons. They, they feel entirely justified in doing so. And I just want to play out this scenario for you. What happens in the mind of people for a moment? The people who hold unforgiveness, this is the reasoning that works in their mind, right? We should not forgive another person who sins against us until they are properly repentant. That's, that's a thought that we have. Whether we say it or not, it's a thought that we have. I can't forgive them until they change, until they're doing something different, until they've done a 180, right? That's because forgiveness mentioned in the Bible, and in, in this context, the command to forgive happens after the model of God's forgiveness, which only comes to us through repentance, so we think in our head, well, God does not forgive us apart from repentance so that we shouldn't have to either. No, we even, we even think that we have a duty to withhold forgiveness, to judge their repentance because ultimately it's in their best interest, right? Church, that, that thinking, even, even if it means well, is incorrect. That thinking, even if, if it means well, is ultimately dangerous. Why? Why? Well, because this parable shows us why it's incorrect. God does not forgive me without my repentance. Therefore, I must withhold forgiveness from others who sin against me until they properly repent is wrong because I do not stand in the same place as God. And neither do you. Not any time in this life will we be in the same place as God in any equation in this life. God stands as the one who has never been forgiven and never needed forgiveness. I, you, we stand as the ones who have been forgiven and need to continually forgive other people. Therefore, if it were possible, we should be far quicker to forgive than God is. We should forgive without precondition. We, we should forgive because we stand as forgiven sinners who must also forgive. I was telling the, the prayer team earlier, in fact, we have a greater obligation to forgive than God does. Since you and I have been forgiven so much, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from other people. We are the debtor forgiven almost an infinite debt. So will we hold on to the small debts that others owe to us? If anyone has the right to withhold forgiveness, it's God. And he forgives more freely and more completely than any person I know. So 
what possible right do we have? It's almost, it's important for us to understand that there is a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation as well. You know, we, we know that true reconciliation of a relationship can only happen when both parties are agreeable to it. You know, and it may require repentance on one or both of the parties in the conflict, yet forgiveness can be one-sided. You know, forgiveness does not necessarily shield someone from civil or even practical consequences of their sin. Like, think about this. How many of you are homeowners in here? Right, you're a homeowner. Or you own a vehicle or, or something, right? Imagine you were robbed with me this morning. You were robbed and they stole everything of value and importance to you from your home. Do you think it would be appropriate for the robber to be arrested and put in jail? Yeah, right? On a personal level, forgiveness is required. But on a civil and a societal level, the person would still be punished by the law. Nevertheless, the principle still clearly stands here in Scripture, we must forgive. How many of you remember last week that we looked at 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians and and Paul reminded the church that by not forgiving, we were literally drowning the individual. We were drowning them. Remember what Christ did to purchase our forgiveness and that should be the greatest incentive to us to release others from the penalty that they deserve from their sinful actions against us. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter. He said he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. Peter, talking about Jesus, he said that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. By his wounds, we have been healed. Forgiveness is the act whereby we release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured us. We're releasing it. You know, when you and I have been hurt, the person took something from us. They took something from us. Maybe it was our innocence. Maybe it was our dignity. Maybe it was our respect or our confidence or some possession. And forgiveness is the act of letting what they owe you go. That's what forgiveness is. How many of you in here, I want to share a story with you. How many of you in here um, have ever heard of the name R.T. Kendall? R.T. Kendall. Pastor, theologian, author. R.T. Kendall uh, was the longtime pastor of the Westminster Church or Chapel in London, England. And he wrote this book that um, I've read numerous times in my life, and, and I, I just finished reading it again in the last maybe week or so. He wrote this book called Total Forgiveness. And in the book, the very first chapter of this book, R.T. tells of a time when someone very near and dear to him hurt him greatly. He never tells you who the person was or what exactly they did, only that the pain was so deep and it hurt so profound because he looked to this person as a father figure. He talked deeply about the anger that overwhelmed him. And one day at length, he began to talk with one of his his good friends about the situation. His name was Joseph's son. And he poured out some of the details to Joseph about what this so-called father figure had done to him. And he paused. He was waiting for Joseph to say, you're right, RT, to feel angry. What happened to you was awful. But Joseph didn't respond in that way. After listening to the details of the story, Joseph simply said, you must totally forgive them. Man, R.T. was dumbfounded, he said in the book. He began to feel angry and even more frustrated because this, this friend of his didn't go along with what he was thinking. And so R.T. starts telling the story all over again. And this time he begins to add more details More pungent details to the story. And Joseph interrupts him 30 seconds in. And he says these words that would change R.T.'s life forever. He said, you must totally forgive them, release them, and you will be set free. The moment that we hear those words, our walls start shooting up. 
We start feeling guarded and we feel the need to protect ourselves. And our mind begins to argue with that very thought. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they lied about me over and over again. They intended to destroy my life. You can't imagine what I've been through. If you knew what they had done to me and my family, you'd be angry too. They they deserve to suffer like we've been suffering. I'm going to make them pay. I'll never forgive those people, ever. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, made this telling remark before his death. He said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And as he made that statement, he gave us probably two of the most profound observations in theological history, and both of them are important to help us understand what's going on here in the text. C.S. Lewis is telling us that forgiveness truly displays Christian integrity. Truly. I want us to consider these words for just a moment. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it very plainly in Matthew chapter 6, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The Apostle Paul put forgiveness into a slightly different framework when he said, be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. He said it very similarly in Colossians chapter 3 when he said, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another and forgive as the Lord forgives you. What about Peter? A man who knew from experience the value of forgiveness. Peter said it this way, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, there's another way to say it, and I I believe it's spoken beautifully in the love chapter of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love keeps no record of wrong. And that little phrase this morning deserves a closer examination. Love keeps no record of wrong. There's another version of the Bible that says love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. I thought it was beautifully penned. Why? Because love doesn't keep score because love has a bad memory. Love doesn't keep score because it finds a way to forget the sinfulness of other people. And we're here this morning, and finally we have one of the greatest and most profound statements on the topic of forgiveness in the entire Bible. The finest, in my opinion, the purest and and highest example of forgiveness when Jesus hung on the cross. I know I said this last week, but it's worth referencing and, and hearing again. When Jesus hung on the, on the cross, condemned to death by evil men who plotted to murder him. Condemned to death by men who produced lying witnesses to convict him. He surveyed the howling mob as he hung upon the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who knew no sin, the only true innocent man who ever walked this sin-cursed planet in his dying moments, he uttered words that still ring true. Centuries later, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, Father. And those ten torturous words by our Savior sweep away every excuse that we have The saddest part about it is those ten torturous words also reveal reveal the barrenness of our heart. They rip the cover off of our unrighteous anger and it shows it for what it truly is. You know, I've been in that place where 
I, I could bet that many of you have been here as well where we've had the thought or we've said, if only the person who hurt me would show some remorse, some sorrow. They would come back and apologize and maybe I would forgive them. I don't know about you, but I have come to find out that that rarely happens. And so we use that as an excuse to continue on in our bitterness, in our anger, in our desire to get even with people. I want us to consider Jesus on the cross for just a moment. No one seemed very sorry when he hung there. Even as he said those words, the crowds laughed and mocked him. They hurled insults at our Savior, saying, if you are king of the Jews, then come down off that cross and save yourself. Church, I want to be really clear this morning. When Jesus died, the people who put him to death were pleased with themselves. Pilate, Scripture says, washed his hands of the entire situation. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus with an irrational hatred. They were happy to see Jesus suffer and die. Evil was present in the air that day, and the forces of darkness had done their work, and the Son of God would soon be in a tomb. Nowhere in Scripture is it recorded that people at the cross were saying, I think we were wrong. I think we made a mistake. I think we were foolish for putting this man on the cross. And yet he still said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. We may be sitting in here this morning. And we already have situations coming to our mind. People coming to our mind that have hurt us, that have said something about us, that have done something to us. But this right here is precisely what we have to say too if we're going to follow Jesus. We have to, we have to say, for, forgive them to the ones who hurt us deliberately and repeatedly. We have to say, for, forgive them to the ones who intentionally attack us. We have to say, forgive, forgive them to the ones who casually and thoughtlessly wound us. And one of the most difficult things to do is to forgive those who are closest to us. Our husbands and our wives, our children, our parents, the people that we see as our friends, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, and fellow Christians. We have to be able to say that we forgive them. C.S. Lewis also observed in his statement that forgiveness is difficult in part because we don't properly understand it. Forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive. So the first thing I want you to write down this morning is the misunderstanding of forgiveness. The misunderstanding of forgiveness. There are so many well-intentioned people writing and saying things about forgiveness that sometimes it feels overwhelming and you feel like you're lost when you're looking at it. And at this point, right, week two of talking about forgiveness, at this point, I feel it necessary for us to clear up some of the misconceptions about forgiveness. Like in some ways, as I was writing this out and studying for the last several weeks of preparing, in some ways I found that it's easier to say what forgiveness is not than what it is. And as I was, I was looking through this, the, the misconceptions really matter. Because sometimes when we can't say or, or, or we won't forgive, we're actually talking about something other than biblical forgiveness. And I want to say, I want you to, to think with me for just a moment. Um, Let's say that you're the coach uh, of a college sports team, right? And let's suppose that you go to a party and you engage in activity and you embarrass the university that you work for. 
right? When, when your activity is exposed and, and you confess what you've done, you ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is granted to you, but you still lose your job. And that exact thing happens all across the United States every single year. Church, I want you to write something down. Forgiveness does not cancel all of the negative consequences of our foolish choices. It doesn't. Forgiveness does not cancel all of the negative consequences of our foolish choices. We saw here in the text that forgiveness was a matter of the heart. It's an important point to to look at because most of us think that forgiveness is primarily about what we do or what we say. You know, I've been in ministry long enough to know that it is quite possible to mouth words of forgiveness while harboring anger and bitterness in the heart. Forgiveness begins inside the heart and it eventually works its way out of us. You know, there's, there's a profound sense in which all forgiveness, even forgiving someone who hurt you deeply, is between you and God. You know, other people may or may not understand forgiveness. They may not even recognize forgiveness. They may not even own up to their need to receive forgiveness. But forgiveness is, in essence, a decision made on the inside to refuse to live in the past. I'm refusing to live there. It's a conscious choice that we have to make to release others from their sin against us so that we can be set free. But one of the hardest things that I have found in my life is that forgiveness doesn't deny the pain. It doesn't deny the pain that's associated with what was done to you. Forgiveness doesn't change the past and make it never happen. But forgiveness breaks the cycle of bitterness that binds us to the wounds of yesterday. It breaks the cycle. It allows us to let go. It allows us to move forward, to move on. If you're a note taker, I want you to write down forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is an act of the will. It is acting upon the truth that never changes. I don't know about you, but I have learned that feelings change. Amen, church? Our feelings can change, and they can change pretty quick. I'll just give you an example. If my wife says, do you want to go eat? If she doesn't make a decision on where we go in the next 30 seconds, I'm a completely different person. Completely different. Our feelings change. I used to love eating certain meals. I don't anymore. I used to love listening to a certain kind of music. I don't anymore. Things change. Our feelings change, and they change like that real quick. We want to feel something, but we have to understand that we must do something first. Godly actions based on truth lead to godly thinking, and godly thinking produces godly desires. Godly thinking produces godly feelings. Forgiveness is not a feeling, but forgiveness is also not forgetting. It's not forgetting. Forgetting is a a passive process in which a memory fades with the passing of time. I said to you last week, and, and I was hoping nobody got offended by the comment, but time heals nothing, church. Time heals nothing at all. Forgiveness is an active process. I want you to look at this verse on the screen. This is one of my life verses here, Philippians 3. It says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, listen to this, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Man, Paul made that statement saying this involves a conscious choice and a deliberate course of action. By choosing to glorify God, we would not remember the bad things that happened to us in the past. We had new goals in glorifying God. And that new goal is to dwell on the future and learning to forgive. When we do that, we lessen and we deaden the pain and we begin to forget. We begin to forget about the person or the people that hurt us. And we begin to focus on the person who heals us, Jesus Christ. 
Church, God does not forget. God is an all-knowing God. He does not forget, but He chooses not to remember. He chooses not to remember our sinfulness. He treats us as though our sinfulness never happened. That's what justification is. I love what the writer of Psalm 103 said. He said he cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so you're, you're sitting in here this morning and you're like, Pastor, what do I do? What's the answer? Like, how do I even begin the process of forgiving someone who's hurt me? Is there a drain that I can just, I can just pull the plug and the unforgiveness just drains out of my body? Is, is there a plug that I get to pull that cuts the power on unforgiveness in my life? How? How do I do this? So the next thing is what, what's involved? What's involved in the process of forgiveness? You know, there, there is an action that occurs after we have made a decision to forgive. The man in Matthew chapter 18, the master, he decided that he was going to forgive the debt. So there's action that comes. And in order to answer this portion of Scripture, I want to I just jump over and I'm going to read. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. I'm going to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Because Paul begins to tell us here that we have to recognize the damage that unforgiveness causes. I'm going to read a few verses. Listen, listen to these. These are very crucial. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse number 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul gave us six damaging emotions and attitudes in the text that occur in our life due to our own sinfulness or to the sinfulness of other people. And I want to spend just a moment helping us to unpack these, these six damaging emotions and attitudes. The first one is bitterness. He names in the text. Bitterness. Aristotle said that bitterness was the resentful spirit that refused reconciliation. Bitterness is the perpetual animosity that we have towards someone else. Like, who are they? What are they up to? They're so annoying. Why did they do this? Why did they say this? Bitterness is the constant negativity in our lives. It's having a caustic and, and a harsh attitude or opinion of another person. Someone once told me years ago, early on in ministry, that bitterness was acid on the heart, scowl on the face, and venom in our words. Acid on the heart, scowl on the face, and venom in our words. That's what bitterness is. The second he mentions is wrath. Wrath is deep, settled indignation. It's what stokes the fire of the hurt inside of our heart. Then comes anger. Anger is the temporary outburst of the sinfulness that we're storing, the unforgiveness that is stored inside of us. Then clamor. Clamor is the noise of relational strife. Clamor requires everyone to know my pain. I have to tell everybody that I meet. I have to say it out loud. Slander, the words that are intended to hurt another person. And then malice is evil inclination of the mind. I want you to just look up here for just a moment. Balcony, I want you to just look up here for just a moment. Your pain is understandable. But your pain is not an excuse to display these six behaviors and attitudes. Your 
your pain is not excusable at all. When, when we are hurt or when we are hurting, we will seek to protect ourselves and in the process we end up hurting other people. I love what Paul said when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. To grieve the Holy Spirit means to affect with sorrow. We're affecting, we're pushing away the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, when we display bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, when we display those, we're pushing away God's healing. We're pushing away God's healing in our life because we're telling the Holy Spirit, I don't want to listen to you right now. I want to feel this way. So I'm pushing away the the, the very thing that's there to get me back on track. I'm pushing away the very help of God. And so in here this morning, we must determine to forgive. We, We can make a decision, but we must be determined to go through the process following that decision. Man, how many times have you made a resolution? How many times have you said you were going to do something and you never followed through? Forgiveness is a decision that has to be followed up. You have to continue in the process. And if you look at the very last verse, the very last verse here in Ephesians 4, it tells us the answer. It gives us what I'm going to call the healing attitudes or the healing emotions that come when we submit to the Holy Spirit. He says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness. A word that means something completely different than what our English word tells us. We think kindness is just being nice to somebody, right? We're we're being cordial to the person. No, kindness comes from the Greek word kriastos, which means benevolent. means one who is benevolent, one who is constantly giving. The new man seeks to show the same benevolence and forgiveness to others that God showed him. The same exact kind. Be kind to the person you're struggling to forgive. Be benevolent. And tender-hearted means that I'm ready to feel the pain of another person. You know, if we treat others as God treats us, we fulfill everything that Paul talked about in, in Ephesians chapter 4. But unforgiveness makes us hard. It makes us indifferent. You know, our forgiveness to others is is patterned after the forgiveness of Jesus towards us. And so when we think of the amazing way that God forgives us, it's shameful for us to withhold forgiveness from those who have wronged us. In fact, it's sinful. It is a sin for us to hold unforgiveness towards another person. So what do we have to do here this morning? How do we start this process? Well, we have to determine that we're not going to bring this up to the person again. I'm going to determine not to have that fight again. I'm not going to throw that back in their face like I have some ammunition that's waiting for the next fight to occur. I have to determine that I'm not going to bring up the issue with all these other people who are not solutions to the problem. I have to determine. I have to determine to not dwell on the offense. Forgiveness deals with the vertical first. My relationship with God. That transaction has to occur first Turn that person, that issue, over to God and then let the healing process begin. Do you know the guy in our parable today would not forgive? Do you notice how he acted? How he treated the the fellow servant that owed him? Do you see how his his actions affected other people? The other servants saw his evil response and what happened to him? What happened to that servant? Well, we know that he did not grant forgiveness, but ultimately he was delivered to, in some versions it says the jailers, but a more accurate is the tormentors. He was delivered to the tormentors for for torture, something that was not good. 
Church, when, when we don't forgive, we have tormentors waiting for us. For each and every one of us, God will chasten us, He will scourge us, He will convict us according to Hebrews chapter 12. And when we fail to forgive, we are acting wickedly. We're acting wickedly. We're doing something against God. We're putting ourselves in a prison and invoking the chastisement of the Lord. I told you guys last week that I have been wrestling with this very topic of forgiveness and a bunch of different situations that have occurred and I was talking to a good friend of mine who lives in Florida and I told him that I Two, it was two weeks ago, and I told him I was about to speak on forgiveness and that I was really struggling. I'm like, man, there's so many things that are going on inside of me. There's so many situations and circumstances that, that have occurred to myself and to our family I've been, I've been blessed with this crazy um, ability to remember even the smallest of details. A blessing in a lot of ways, but a curse. I told my buddy that, um, that I remember the date and the time of every incident that's occurred to me since I've been here. I told him that I can tell him at what time it occurred and what the person even had on. I can tell them what their hair looked like. I can tell them what was occurring before that and what occurred after that. I can tell them how I felt in the moment that it was occurring, what it was going on. And I told them that I had been begging of God to help me remember to forget the pain of the past. And he said, Josh, the, the one who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself has to pass. And I didn't catch it at first. And I wanted to keep talking and telling him of all of the painful things that occurred and remind him because he was there for me when I needed somebody who understood. And he said, Josh, the man who cannot forgive others, he breaks the bridge over which he himself has to pass. You're destroying your relationship with the Lord. You're, you've crushed it completely because you can't let go. You want to play God in your life. You want to be the one who gets vengeance. And so I was like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to, how can I stand in the pulpit and address forgiveness with our church when I am struggling to do that very thing? As I was reading this portion of scripture, the Lord said, you already know what to do. You know the truth. And now every single person in this room knows the truth too. We all know the difference between forgiveness and unforgiveness. We all know now what scripture says. And if you say, hey, I wasn't here last week, guess what? It's recorded and you can go back and listen to it. So pastor, what do we do? Well, our first action step this morning is that we have to grieve. And you may be saying, grieve? Grieve what? Grieve what could have been. Grieve what should have been, but will never ever come to pass. That's what you grieve. 
And then after you've grieved those things, then you leave it. You let it go. If we plan on, on having any enduring relationships, we have to elevate the example of Christ and we must forgive. We must forgive. Every relationship is dependent upon forgiveness. And if you plan to be a part of our church here, the well, then you need to commit to forgive. You need to commit to forgive. And so you should have received an index card when you came in this morning. And if you did not get one, if, I, if you could just kind of slip your hand up and we can make sure that you, you got one. I'm going to challenge you to do something this morning. On that index card, I want you to do two things. I want you to write down the name of the people on your unforgiven list. And I want you to write down the pain that is associated with those, with those people. I want you to write it down. I don't, I don't, I don't need, you don't need to have a conversation with your spouse or the, per, the person sitting next to you. I want you to just write down the, the names and the pain that is associated with them. Hey, Israel. There is a, a music folder on iTunes that says altar call and reflections or something like that. Can you play that music for me in the background, please? You wrote down a person and you wrote down your pain. Now I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to to have a plan in place. I'm going to ask you in just a second to confront the attitudes and the emotions that wreck our relationship with the Lord and allow for the healing process to start. You wrote out the names and the pain on that piece of paper. Now I'm asking you to commit to getting up out of your seat saying I'm going to come and leave that pain and that person at the altar. I'm going to come and I'm going to leave that pain and that person in the hands of Jesus and I'm going to determine not to pick it back up. I'm going to determine to retrain my thinking in the process. I'm going to determine to not dwell. I'm going to determine to repent of my actions and my attitude that is sinful. And I'm going to set a new goal to press towards the mark. I'm going to press towards the prize of the high calling of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And if you're in here this morning and you're saying, I want to commit to letting these, these people and this pain go, I want you to get out of your seat and I want you to come to the altar. I want you to set that card on this altar and get alone with God for a few minutes. I don't want to force anybody. I'm not going to twist your arm to let go. You may be in here and you still may be struggling, and I get that. I understand. But the Lord is calling us to obey and respond to truth, and so now is the time. Now is the time. I'm going to get out of my seat, and I'm going to come with my card and say, God, I don't want to carry this burden anymore. I want to leave it at the altar. Who's going to be first?
would encourage the rest of you to just be in an attitude of prayer. And when you are done praying, you can leave that right at the altar. I don't want you to take it back. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God, for your forgiveness first and foremost. The forgiveness that you so free, you so freely gave through your Son. Thank you for the example that you have given to us and, and the scripture to guide our steps. Lord, when we don't know where, where to go, when it seems like there's just darkness in front of us, we don't know the path. And so, God, I'm asking right now in this place that we would learn to hide those truths deep within our hearts so we would not sin against you. God, that we, we would seek you in our hurt and pain. God, I thank you for those who are stepping forth saying, uh, I want to be held accountable, that I'm ready, I'm, I'm determined to move forward in this life. And for those who are not ready, God, I would continue to ask of you to use the Holy Spirit's conviction in their lives, Lord, so that they, they can know the freedom that comes from letting go, from grieving and leaving it, God.
the freedom that they, they can find through your truth, for, through letting go the, the person or the people, the situation, the circumstance. God, give us strength to go from here in love that when those thoughts do come back or those situations get brought up in the future, Lord, that we would reroute our minds back to your truth that we would remind ourselves that we had determined to let go and to forgive and that we will love and pray for those who have hurt us. God, help us to be a church of forgiving people because we are forgiven. Use us, Lord. We just thank you for this wonderful day, this, this beautiful uh, opportunity that we have to come together as a church. And I, I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen, amen, amen.